mindfulness mode 218. The more we have control, the more it eventually squeezes the life out of our life. So now we're in a place of surviving, not living and thriving. I think to actually live our life truly, we have to be willing to experience the fear of death. You're listening to Mindfulness Mode with your host and Mindfulness Life Coach, Bruce Lankford. So great to have you joining us. And you're, if you're returning as a listener, thank you so much. If you're here for the first time, totally appreciate it. Today, I have an amazing guest who, well, he's got incredible wisdom about mindfulness and incredible wisdom about humor. He's received millions and millions and millions of views on YouTube for his very funny videos. But like I said, he also has a tremendous amount of wisdom. And on today's show, he talks about how when he looks back, he feels a certain way about some of the bullying situations he's experienced in his own life and how he exerted power over other people you'll hear all about it one of the things that he said was and i quote shaming people has taught me not to shame people he said it's really taught me well the power of how to use humor to help not harm and he really does use humor this is jp sears i'm telling you about i'm so happy to have him on the show i'm sure you'll benefit from this so sit back relax and laugh a little as you hear my interview with jp sears mindful tribe i'm so excited i have jp sears here today hey jp are you in mindfulness mode uh, I am actually so dissociated right now that uh, I've, I've completely left my body, Bruce. So does that sound mindful to you? Well, that's a different kind of mindfulness that I think we better be talking about here on today's show. I will tell you that today's guest is a deeply spiritual thought leader. With an intense sense of humor, which you may have experienced if you've seen any of his viral videos, which focus on essential oils, the joys of being gluten-free or gluten intolerant, I should say, being vegan, the wonderful uses of coconut oil, and so many more awesome topics to talk about. According to his book, How to Be Ultra Spiritual, we're taught that he was sent to our planet by God-fearing atheists to create videos to share hidden secrets only being revealed now, after the passing of centuries of time. I'm thrilled and delighted to welcome J.P. Sears to Mindfulness. So, J.P., tell us, what does mindfulness mean to you? That's a, a good question to me. And by the way, thank you for having me on, Bruce. This is wonderful. I think what mindfulness means to me is awareness and connection to thyself where uh, when we're in a mindful state, I think ironically, it doesn't have a hell of a lot to do with our mind, even though the, the term mindfulness uh, can uh, trick us into thinking that. I think it means like our body is full of ourselves. We're very present and connected. Uh, in our body, we're aware of sensations of our body, and we're also aware of thoughts. So it's kind of like we're not identified with things we're not, because we're aware of the things that we're not, our thoughts. And we're very connected to, I think, this very underrated, miraculous instrument that we're blessed with called our bodies. 
that it can be very easy to discount, uh, especially when we're walking a conscious journey. We can become very unconscious of the great miraculous benefit of our body. That was such a long description of what mindfulness means to me. Uh, So I think Einstein said that if you can't explain something simply, it means you don't understand it. So listening to my answer, Bruce, I, I would guess my the deeper message is I don't know what mindfulness is, but we just heard my rambling opinion of what mindfulness is to me. Well, yeah, do any of us truly know? what mindfulness is you know that's the thing and i love to talk to people all over the world and everybody has a different opinion of what this means and i know that in my opinion a big part of mindfulness is lightening up having Mm. humor when did you first realize that your humor was a part of you that you really truly wanted to express and get in touch with well Pretty early on, and to me, the the interesting thing, and I have to say it's interesting, it's my story, just that self-absorbed, I am really interesting, everybody, listen up. Yes. But to me, the, the interesting thing is why I was like fascinated with my humor at different ages uh, changed. So I think why I was fascinated with my humor probably uh, as a child through honestly, probably most of my 20s, was I could use it as a tool to manipulate people into liking me. You know, if I get you to laugh, then I have some degree of value to you, and that makes me feel better than worthless. So let me try to get you to laugh so that I can feel worthy to you, was sort of the the mantra mindset that a lot of my humor uh, was caused by, and I'm not saying that's bad. I don't need to shame myself. It's just, I think that's what motivated a lot of my humor. And now I I hope, and I think, and I intend, so whatever, am I really in control? Probably not, but I hope my humor has more orientation around actually accepting myself, understanding myself. And honestly, the being more mindful of myself rather than as I, you know, teenager or person in his early twenties, using my humor to try to convince people that I'm something I'm not. But for me now, it's more of, you know, the samurai sort of humor. I use it to like cut through the scar tissue of my psyche to expose more of like who and how I really am. And And I think when I can laugh at myself from a place of acceptance, that's grace. Not laughing at myself from a a place of shaming myself, like bullying myself. We can all get cheap laughs that are very harmful oriented. But to me, deep laughs come from a place of understanding and connecting to ourselves while accepting ourselves. So I, 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 it's been a big change that drives my humor, to be honest. So when you were a kid, were you the class clown in school? Yeah, I was definitely one of them. It was myself and then he's still a great friend of mine. We've been friends since we were five years old, a guy named Matt Henry. Uh, We were the class clowns. And yeah, I was always way more interested in making people laugh than I was and what the teacher was teaching about. And I think I would spend most of the days in school just like feeling for those. It's kind of, it, it truly was a feel, but feeling for the pockets of time 
when I could just interject something, you know, teachers writing something on the board, I can just interject something without getting in too much trouble. And it's kind of like after a while with each teacher, there's kind of like this intuitive dance where you just feel like, okay, I can get away with something right now without going too far over the line, but getting close enough to the line that I'm getting a reaction from everybody. So did you ever have teachers that just couldn't stand you because of that aspect of your personality? You know, that's a good question. I'll tell you, I don't think so. And here's why. Because one of my biggest dysfunctions uh, that I'm still working on recovering from is being a people pleaser. So the idea of getting to a point where a teacher doesn't like me, that's very scary for like the wounded inner child inside of me who compensates by becoming a people pleaser, like I'm nothing unless you like me. So, you know, I, I liked to push boundaries with teachers, but not break the boundaries with teachers. And yeah. certainly once in a while, I'd stumble across the line, get in trouble. But I didn't like to have that be the state of a relationship with a teacher or honestly with with anybody. Uh, and I, one particular story is I get uh, a little more self-absorbed. I was I think I was like 15. So I was like a sophomore in high school. And there is an accounting class, but it was a substitute teacher that day. And I, I don't know about you, Bruce, and all the listeners, but when I was in school, when there was a substitute teacher that came in for the, you know, the one-hour class period, it basically meant we didn't have to pretend to learn anything that day. Because, like, the teacher, like, they don't know where we're at in the curriculum. So it no. kind of, like, turns into a study hall, quote-unquote, do work, stay quiet, don't get into trouble. That's kind of... Yeah. So I was sitting with a friend of mine, Greg Asmus, just might as well. Um, and I, for some reason, I was just pretending to be Spider-Man. So I was like on the desk and doing the whole spider web kind of thing. And yeah. the teacher, uh, Mr. Uh, forgot his name, Mr. Wallace, I think was his name. Uh, he said, okay, uh, uh, you need to get down from there. So I got down from there. About 45 seconds later, I'm back on top of the desk. I'm Spider-Man and... And he said, okay, I warned you. I have to write you up for a detention. What's your name? I looked at him and I said, Spider-Man. And he said, no, what's your real name? And I said, Peter Parker. And at that point, like he, he's laughing his butt off. So I, I kind of crossed the line enough and then kept going that I didn't get in trouble that day because I got him to laugh. So he felt obligated to not give me a detention. So you've always used humor pretty much to kind of help reach people, to connect with people. You certainly connect with people now using humor, but you also have a very serious side. I know I listened to you talk about shame and fear and and guilt and some of these yeah. some of these challenges that we all have and you say feeling those feelings is healing. Yeah. Well, we're a lot of us are taught, at least in North America and a lot of areas we're taught, you know, hey, just push those feelings down. You know, you got to get through life and just push those feelings down and do what you have to do. You know, go to work or go to school, do what you're supposed to do, do what you're told. So you help people to feel their feelings. How do you do that? 
Well, that's a, a good question. Uh, first off, I definitely can't do it for a person. It's just yeah. kind of like a mountain guide. Like, well, how do you climb the mountain for people? You give them a piggyback ride and, and good mountain guys like, well, I don't climb the mountain for them. I, I help guide them at best. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, I, I think the biggest thing that helps me help other people to help themselves heal their unresolved feelings is create a, an atmosphere that says it's actually okay to feel bad. Like it doesn't mean you're a bad person. Yes. It, it's not wrong. And, and in other words, it's okay to not feel okay sometimes. Like if that's how you feel, that's okay. And I, my experience is all of us have our unique versions of childhood programming that tend to have actually a lot in common. And in one way or another, I find that most of us learned, I am not okay when I'm feeling shame. It's not okay for me yes. to be afraid. It's certainly not okay for me to be angry. No, definitely not. Absolutely. So we notice when our parents and the big people around us, how they would typically react when we were emotionally charged. And, and my impression of how my parents would typically react, like if I was afraid, they would say, you have nothing to be afraid about. So it's like I, 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 my experience was they're discounting my fear, which taught me to discount my fear. Like I'm afraid, but it's not okay to be afraid. So in, let me just go into denial of my fear. I'll suppress it. And then I can pretend it's not there. Because if right, I don't see, exactly. smell, hear, taste, or feel it, then I'm under the illusion that it's not there. But I do believe that what we don't know about ourselves controls us far more than what we do know about ourselves. Or, you know, if I, if I was angry, I would experience shame projected at me, which taught me to be ashamed of my anger. And that didn't feel good. Shame is like a very hurtful emotion. So it just taught me to turn my back on the part of me that is angry before I knew that part of me is angry. So it's a lot of self-rejection in the name of avoiding shame. So long story short, I think the best gift that I can give someone, the best gift that we can all give ourselves is for the first time in our lives, remind ourselves it's okay to for me to feel how I'm feeling. And some of us would say, well, that's not the first time that I'm going to tell myself, good. We all need that reminder at least 10,000 times. It's okay for me to feel how I'm feeling. And I think the ironic part is when we feel our feelings, that's what allows us to actually digest, process, and go beyond how we're feeling. Just because we have the mindset that says, oh, I let that go which is usually means I'm in denial of that. And I therefore haven't let it go. I'm so attached to it, but that's happening inside of me and I can't see it. I can't perceive it. So I pretend that I'm not completely controlled by my experience of repressing and strangulating and controlling this feeling and having it control me. But if we can realize, Oh no, it actually embracing it is what allows us to go into it. So I think, you know, the cure for fear is to be afraid. The cure for shame mm. is to be ashamed, uh, not dwell in it, not avoid it, 
but experience it, not with our head, but with our freaking feelings. And lastly, Bruce, before I get off my soapbox, uh, I do have the opinion that painful feelings have never hurt anybody. I think Mm -hmm. how we hurt ourselves is trying to avoid the painful feelings. But, you know, I love how you, you framed this question that you know, essentially in our society, we are in our families and our schools, we're certainly not taught to embrace emotions. Yeah. I think we're taught to embrace like 10% of the emotional spectrum, which is happiness. Like that, that's the one emotion you can feel. So pursue happiness. But we should do that all the time. We should be happy all the time. Isn't yeah. that right, JP? Basically, you should have a manic personality disorder. Yes. Be happy all the time. I'm happy. I'm happy. <laughs> I'm kill happy. All, kill all the inner parts of you that aren't happy. So, you know, we are faced with a task of uh, really rewriting all that programming in a way that serves us better now. And I think nobody can do that uh, aside from our own self. Well, I think that reminds me of the movie The Stepford Wives. Did you ever see that movie? No, I didn't. But well, it's it's uh, there were a couple of them made it. It was a movie where it was a world where all women were given a pill, and that pill just created this person who wanted to be happy or was happy all the time and happy and willing to just kind of run around and do all the tasks and and fulfill. And at first glance, everything seemed perfectly normal in this world. And then the more you got looking into the world, you thought, wow, this just seems a little bit off. There's something wrong here. What's going on? Oh, they have no emotions other than happiness and duty. <laughs> and I, I got a big kick out of this movie, but in a way, we're living in a world where a lot of people kind of feel we should be that way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think when we say, I just want to be happy. We're using the word happiness to describe something else. And we think uh. it's happiness because we call it happiness. But I think what so many of us really mean when we say, I just want to be happy, is we really mean is I want to be safe and comfortable. And, I and have feel. peace and, and contentment. And absolutely. And feel in control. Yes. However, especially control, safe. Uh, right. I, I think that that's the opposite of happiness. I think real happiness is found outside of our comfort zone. And ironically, when we leave our comfort zone, whether it's our comfort zone of who I think I am and, you know, I, I start to challenge my self-identity mm-hmm. or it's external projects or careers. But when we leave our comfort zone, we temporarily lose a feeling of peace, right. which I think is paradoxically necessary to get to a deeper, truer sense of peace, which is arriving more into who we really are, a truer sense of happiness, which I think is is only available outside of the coffin of our comfort zone. Right. And we live in this world where we have this incredible political correctness thing going on. And yet you seem to just bypass that. 
You seem to just have all the courage in the world. You're just going to go out there and create a video which talks about some of these things that are just on the edge of political correctness, like the whole the whole gluten-free thing. Mm-hmm. Like if you if somebody said, "Well, no, I can't eat that because I'm gluten-free." We you know, most of us are not going to make a comment that might sound like we might be making fun of them, <laughs> but yet you have the courage to go ahead and make this hilariously funny video and and I think so many of us relate to that because I've never seen anybody do that. I've never seen anybody uh, say the kinds of things that you've said the way you say it. So where do you find the courage and the guts to do this? And how do you do it so that you're just on the line without going over, going too far? Man, well, first off, I appreciate you uh, reflecting the, the courage and the guts that you see. Uh, yeah, I'm codependent enough that I really enjoy hearing that. And <laughs> and I feel affirmed because it, it does take courage. And I, I think the the level of courage that I have to speak my point of view uh, present day you know, without apologizing it, without trying to convince people this is true for you, but just being a human being and respecting myself enough to represent me and my point of view, not pretending it's the absolute tr- truth, but to represent my point of view. Uh, I, I, I have more courage to do that today than when I first started making videos. Sure. So it's been a progressive build. And, and I think there's, I think the biggest teacher of courage to me has been experiencing the consequences of what it's like when I don't speak my truth. It, it feels honestly yucky, heavy, inside of me. I feel like I'm betraying myself. I feel like, honestly, I'm prostituting myself, selling myself, you know, in the form of let me avoid myself, avoid this perspective in order to try to buy other people's approval more. So honestly, like really getting into the feelings that are there about what it feels like when I'm not true to myself has been the greatest teacher of courage to be myself again without apologizing for it and and I think the the other thing that's important to me is to know my intent uh, i I know my intent at least my conscious intent is to help people not harm and you mentioned a line you know especially with satirical humor, it's got a sharp edge to it. If it doesn't have an edge to it, it's not satire. It's just slapstick or some other form of humor. Mm -hmm. But satire is sort of like my unique fingerprint of humor. So it does have an edge. And I think honestly, at times, some people would say, yeah, you you crossed the line, JP. And I get that. It's the I think where the line is, is different for everybody. Because have you ever crossed the line with, with your videos where you had to, you know, just stop and rethink it and take a video down, that kind of thing? No, no, I haven't. Uh, you know, the if let's just say 50% of the feedback was like thumbs down and only 50% thumbs up, I'm like, okay, that majority of people here, I need to really pay attention to this. But typically it's, I mean, I think it's like 5% or less of the feedback is the thumbs down or people getting offended. 
And with that, I realize there, we live in a society where a lot of us are connoisseurs of outrage. We're stuck in a victim mentality and we're always looking for something to get offended by because that helps reaffirm that life is being done to us, against us, and therefore I'm the helpless victim. So I don't want to control my life based on the victim mentality that a lot of people have, which is to avoid sure. letting people offend themselves based on how they project their sense their sense of powerlessness onto my videos. So with all that said, yeah, I, I've yet to and hopefully won't have to sure. have a, a video retracted, though if, if it were to happen, I'd hopefully pay attention to it and yeah. learn a lesson. And then, you know, my, my intent is, is always to help people. So like with a gluten-free video or how to become gluten intolerant, first off, you know, I've been gluten-free for past 15 years. So it, it comes in a way, the video is about something that's very important to me, very helpful to me. And also the video, a lot of the videos are not what, they're not about what people think they're about. You yes. know, how to become gluten intolerant, it's not about gluten. It's about the self-righteous, judgmental, controlling behavior that is human behavior that some people who are gluten intolerant can exhibit. So it's not about gluten intolerance. It's about this shadow behavior that we can disguise behind something noble and altruistic, a health practice. And, and, you know, whether it's veganism or paleoism or meditating, yoga, spirituality, religiousness, that kind of human behavior, self-righteousness, judgment, yeah. all while pretending it's not there because we're hiding it behind this trump card called, well, I'm religious. You can't question what I'm saying because this is religion. No, that's like really condescending judgment. That's not yeah. religion. So yeah. th that's typically what I'm trying to expose with videos, doing it in a satirical way, which means there's subtleties. It's not just overt, like, here's the message. I think one of the reasons why I love satirical humor is it, ha it expresses a lot of respect for the viewer, where I'm not really telling people, here's the message, or here's how you need to view the video. There's yes. subtlety in it, which to me respects the free will of the viewer. It's like there's a mystery here, a little bit of a riddle for you to uncover and solve. And honestly, you might not solve it and see it my way, though you might. But to me, that subtlety, the mystery of satire is part of the magic of it. It, it helps engage people's minds. Whereas like with slapstick humor, you're, you're not really left wondering like, oh, what's that about? It's like, no, we're just exaggerating things. It's, it's very obvious. But satire, it's exposing what's under the obvious. And I love that. So to me, it's much more engaging. And honestly, I think it evokes more mindfulness. Because if we're not being relatively mindful and curious, then the humor just goes over our head. And we'll say, well, there's nothing humorous about that. Well, in your book, How to Be Ultra Spiritual, you know, you talk about competitive spirituality and you talk about social status and how that's another term for spiritual status. Can you share those thoughts with us and, and how you expanded on that in the book? It was pretty fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. So the book, it's my satirical look at the spiritual New Age culture. And right. yeah, you know, with competitive spirituality, 
it's less about spirituality and much more about social status. So getting other people to acknowledge how spiritual you are, that's not what makes you spiritual. It's what makes you ultra-spiritual. And then, of course, getting people to acknowledge that you are more spiritual than they are, that is a wonderful trump card uh, of social status that you get through being ultra-spiritual. And, Bruce, I also love your competitive spirituality because here you are this is the mindfulness mode podcast you leave it no mystery to everybody you are a mindful person because you tell them you're a mindful person in the name of your podcast so it's almost like you read my book before it even came out which maybe you did through your intuition i think that's possible yeah and i think i think it's the kind of book you just have to keep reading it on an ongoing basis you know it has so much value as you go you can't just read it all at once and then put it down and put it on that bookshelf and let it get dusty that can't happen now that's disrespectful to yes the book, I think. yeah and that would not be mindful Absolutely. It would be full of dust. Yes. Yes. It would be dustful, not (laughs) mindful. That's for sure. Well, you know that I've worked in bullying prevention for a long time, and I've actually used satire in that area as well and uh, reached the students and the audiences that that, uh, I presented to by... uh, just setting up a scenario where I was a DJ and we're coming to you live and we're doing all this kind of stuff to kind of get music and video and audio and all these things going and, and create that, that way for kids to remember the real concepts. Tell us, were you ever bullied JP and, and do you have a story on bullying that you can share with us and how mindfulness may have made a difference? Yeah. You know, first off, I, I love the work you're doing with bullying. I think, you know, there bullying is severe abuse disguised as just the way it is. Exactly. So I love how in the past really handful of years and it's really culminating now and the work you're doing is such a great contributor where we're looking to free kids and honestly adults too, but looking to free kids from this, sort of silent secrecy that we consent to where it's like I am trapped by bullying and and I can't tell on anybody because that means I'll be bullied more. So kids need a way out. Uh, Life is too short to not be free. And, you know, telling a child like, well, just be yourself. Don't worry about it. That's amazing advice, but functionally useless. Uh, we children need more help because this is a real issue present day. And it would just be a joy to me if in a a short amount of time you and I wake up and it's like, well, this is not an issue anymore. Just find something else to spend your time on. That would be amazing. So with that said, I do have experience with bullying. Um, you know, as a kid, I, I wasn't, constantly picked on by any means. I won't pretend uh, that that was my case, but there were definitely times where it's like, well, I'm being bullied and this feels crummy. The, uh, you know, the, the, the biggest one that stands out in this moment, I was on the uh, football team in first year of high school. And it's my freshman year, you know, before school started, we were in the weight room and, um, 
one of the older guys uh, just started belittling me. And, and honestly, I went into a shell for the next two years. And, and I didn't really, at the time, I couldn't really comprehend like, oh, I'm going into a shell because I just, I feel so much shame and uh, I want to avoid being shamed like this again. I couldn't recognize that at the time, but now looking back, it's like, wow, I, I did that. I was living in an avoidance posture, which uh, did, you know, so becoming way more introverted than I actually am, you know, way less outgoing than I actually am. In, in other words, avoiding being authentic. Right. Did I avoid some future bullying reoccurrences? Maybe. But what it really cost me was being myself and probably making connections with a lot of other people. And then also, uh, there were times, not, not hopefully not often, but certainly sometimes that stick out in my mind where I was acting bullying out on other people. And, and at times I would use those times I would use humor to hurt people. And I, you know, like it's sometimes easy to do that because one, the easiest laughs are always the cheapest, most hurtful. Yeah. And because like everybody's laughing, sometimes even the person that I'm hurting is laughing. It's easy to, in the moment, convince myself, oh, we're just having fun. But it's yeah. like, no, looking back, I can realize I'm acting out a sense of power over this person to compensate for how powerless I feel inside. And I think anytime someone is bullying someone else, it is a hurt person trying to hurt someone else so that they can have a temporary sense of escaping their hurt. Because it's like psychologically, if I can make you the hurt one, Bruce, then I, for a, a short amount of time, I believe like, well, you're the hurt one, so I'm not the hurt one. So I don't have hurt because look how much you're hurting. And honestly, the, the times that that would happen, I developed so much shame about that. Like I hurt someone else that it taught me not to do that. And I think there's such thing as healthy shame. Healthy shame is like it feels so crummy to do this. Yeah. But that painful shame is a great teacher to not do that crummy thing. Again, it helps teach us to do it a better way. So it, shaming people has taught me not to shame people. It's really taught me well the power of humor and how to use humor to help not harm, uh, how to use humor to acknowledge and heal pain and accept it rather than project pain, which is to reject pain and try and get away from it inside. So, yeah, it's it. it uh, sorry for the noise. We'll truck out. Apparently, that's the noise I should tells me I should stop talking. That, that means stop. Time for next question. Okay. Did I forget to tell you that I have a horn that I, that I that, use? Yeah, for I thought that was a truck driving by outside. No, no, no. It's one of those ones you squeeze the horn and it's like a, those old bike horns, you know. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you about the imposter syndrome, you know, like you talk about the pain that sometimes we have. And so many of the people I work with have this imposter syndrome thing going on. You know, they know they want to create. They know they want to 
to move forward in their lives, but something's holding them back and they're not creating or they're not helping others or they're not doing that thing that they really truly think they want to. What do you think? What's the answer to this? Why do so many of us suffer from this? Yeah, and well, I'm curious why. What uh, with all that, oh, I definitely understand the question. But why do you call that the imposter syndrome? I've heard others refer to that, and there are a few books I've read where they refer to it as the imposter syndrome, and it's it's something that feels like it's taking over your mind, and so basically it's that monkey mind thing. You know, it's it's taking over your mind, and somebody else or some other you know source of thought. Yeah. is taking over. So that's, I think, where the, the, the term came from, okay. imposter syndrome. Got it. So it's, it's kind of like someone else is running us rather than us. Yes, exactly. Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that as human beings we can all relate to is uh, our ego's addiction to control. And I think, oddly enough, why, you know, why do we get so addicted to having a sense of control? It's because ultimately that makes us feel like we're safer, we're preserving our life better. And I think the more we have control, the more it eventually squeezes the life out of our life. So now we're in a place of surviving, not living and thriving. I think to actually live our life truly we have to be willing to experience the fear of death in order to actually live our life. So what what scares you to death? Typically, all those things that we, we have the inkling of going that, that direction and doing them, but we don't do them. We don't do them because part of us is scared to death of them. Maybe not we'll die physically, but psychologically, we we think so many things will kill us that have no ability to kill us. So... Right. A direct answer to, I think, your brilliant question is, I think the reason why we all hold ourselves back, just to generalize it, is it allows us to have a sense of control. But if we step forward into you know, saying yes to an inspiration that's coming into us and it wants to live through us, what we realize is that would be us saying yes to expressing something bigger than what we currently express, which means we're losing control. Right. It's it, about it, control. Yeah. yeah. And and I think whatever it is that wants to live through us, which I think there's, we're all here for a reason. I think there's, yeah. the reason isn't to yeah. play it small in life and to be safe and predictable and normal. So I think we all have something that big that wants to live through us. And I think what we're all truly called to do, not necessarily what we do, but what we're called to do at a heart level is bigger than we think it is, which means when we step into that, the more we step into it, the more we lose control over who we think we are, who we think we're supposed to be, how we think it's supposed to be, how we think life is supposed to be. So to really step into our power, I think means we have to be willing to surrender control, not gain more of it. And I think when we look at people who are truly successful, and I'm not just talking about the one dimensional facade of success, like, well, this person has $400 million, though that might be accompanying true success. To me, true success is someone who's inner fulfilled, and they say yes to what wants to live through them, not 
yes to what I want, but yes to what wants to live through me. So those people, I think, are the ones who are, you know, they appear to have it all under control. But in my opinion, those are the ones who are most surrendered and most willing to live their life in a way that isn't worshiping control. If that makes a little bit of sense. That does. That does. That that positions you as a true thought leader. And Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that as a you know, to be funny. I mean, I I really think of you that way. You know, you're a thought leader because you understand so many of those intricacies of the human condition, but also the yin and the yang you've talked about of seriousness and humor, which I think is a big part of this. JP, I really am grateful to have you on the show. And as we get closer to the conclusion, I want to just ask you five quick answer questions, if I could. And the first one is, who is one person who has truly influenced your mindfulness? Uh, John McMullen. Uh, He's been a a mentor of mine, teacher, great friend, kind of like just a brother. For the past uh, 13 years, he is just an angel living inside of a human body. Uh, his organization is called journeysofwisdom.com. He has been a true godsend in my life, John McMullen. Okay. How has mindfulness affected your emotions, JP? Uh, it, it's allowed me to embrace them more. So sure. it's like I don't know that my emotions have changed from mindfulness, but my relationship to emotions has changed for the more intimate, where it's like, okay, I, you know, the first couple decades of my life, I was mostly numb. Like so much was going on under the surface, but I was unaware of it. A uh, lot, uh, you know, rationally and also emotionally unaware of my emotional reality. So to me, mindfulness helps me acknowledge what is. And I think that the, the old Zen path to contentment, accepting things as they are without the need uh, to change them, without the need for them to be otherwise. So uh, that's mindfulness helps me with that, with my emotions. And I'm, I'm not perfect. I'm clumsy at best, but it's, it's a nice help. Well, tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness practice. I don't think I've seen you on a video, not one of your funny videos talking about breathing, but maybe I missed it. How is breathing part of your mindfulness, JP? It's a great question. I'm looking at my desk right now. Oftentimes I'll have a post-it note that just says breathe. I guess I need to write a new one because it's not on my desk at the moment. I think Breathing is a fascinating biofeedback tool. It tells us what's going on in our body, but more importantly, I think it tells us what's going on in our mind and maybe even like our relationship to what's beyond our mind. Right. So uh, when I notice my breathing being shallow, caught up, I'm taking things too seriously, I'm getting stressed out, that's my mindfulness cue to become more mindful. So I think becoming mindful of my lack of mindfulness is a powerful step to becoming more mindful at a core level. So noticing shallow breathing, you know, and I feel it in my neck. It's just so obvious when we just remind ourselves to look for it. So breathing helps me become mindful of my lack of mindfulness. 
Well, your book, How to Be Ultra Spiritual, is amazing. But do you have any other books you would recommend on the topic of mindfulness? There, you know, a book, it's not specifically on the theme mindfulness, though I think there's so many books written that are wonderful for mindfulness, even though they're not themed under that category. One of my favorite all-time books is called Conversations with God, book one by Neil Donald Walsh. Have you read that, Bruce? I have not, no. It sounds religious, and it's incredibly not religious. It's super just free thinking. It's just an amazing book. And the relationship I have with myself and my mind, it really changed when I read that book. Uh-huh. You know, some books I take in in my head. This book, it went in in my heart. And it, and it, it probably won't for all people. It, it's just kind of like different strokes for different folks. Sure. That that's a wonderful bit. And then, you know, I certainly have to shout out to Eckhart Tolle, The Power of Now, A New Earth. I absolutely love that. Love his work. And I feel it's very beneficial at an embodied level, not just theoretical scholarly concepts. Right. Yeah, yeah. So many of my guests mention that and I totally agree. Can you share an app? which helps you to be more mindful or that you would recommend for that purpose? Yeah. uh, My recommendation on an app to become more mindful is to not use an app. I think (laughs) (laughs) a little contrarian rebellion happening here. But, you know, personally on my phone, I have very few apps. And the apps I have, I, I use to serve me. So, you know, I, I, I kind of think over apping ourselves over anything ourselves, if that's a word, mm-hmm. can reduce our mindfulness. So, uh, you know, kind of being mindful to rid myself of distractions is important. And I think I spend too much damn time on my phone as it is. So I've, uh, I'm not a big fan of additional apps on my phone Right. Well, I know you are available at Awaken with JP, but tell us, how can Mindful Tribe connect with you and maybe see even more of, of the content and what you share online? Yeah, Astral Projection's awesome. I'm at home right now, so come visit me. Don't even need to knock, just manifest. Uh, and if you're not into Astral Projecting, you can find me. All my social media handles are Awaken with JP. I'm very active on Facebook, YouTube. I'm always uh, publishing my new videos there and Instagram as well. And uh, so, yeah, I'd love to connect with y'all if you care to at Awaken with JP. That'd be great. Well, thanks again for being on the on the show today, JP, and have a great rest of your day. Thank you, Bruce. I so appreciate you having me on, brother. My, my pleasure. You take care. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For insightful blog articles and show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by clicking on the iTunes link on our website and leave a rating and review. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.